even though you knew it might be radioactive and deadly, could you resist the temptation to go out and look? And when you finally did, after two weeks, what would you find? A world you recognized, or a wasteland for which little in your experience had prepared you? When after two weeks you crawl out of your trench or your concrete bunker, it could be that your real problems will just be beginning. That is the conclusion of A Guide to Armageddon, the QED News Magazine documentary from 1981 that I mentioned last time. After a young married couple have volunteered to spend two weeks in a cramped homemade shelter, the narrator wonders about the value of surviving at all. It's typically bleak for these years. The questions he asks were at the heart of the debate over civil defense and survival at the beginning of the 1980s. What good is surviving the strike when the aftermath offered no promise of a return to normal living in your lifetime, or even the lifetimes of your emotionally and probably intellectually damaged children. In a summary of the issue, which I think never quite transitioned into an empty platitude, the profoundly important think tanker Herman Kahn wrote in 1960, Will the living envy the dead? Let's explore that question, and more. Movies of the Cold War, Part 4, The Aftermath, this time on the Cold War Vault. at least the part of the nuclear age that saw sufficient technological development to lay your enemies and yourself to waste, Herman Kahn's question has been central to the debate around civil defense and arms proliferation and control. Even more importantly, it has influenced public perception of what the aftermath of a nuclear war might look like and what it would mean for the survivors. As the Cold War went on, and the numbers of nuclear weapons grew, the answer to this question changed from a kind of slim hope in the ability to recover to a widely held perception that a nuclear war would mean the end of civilization. When the highly publicized study on nuclear-induced global cooling was published in 1983, usually called the TTAPS, which is either TAPS or TTAPS, depending on what conference you're at. When that was published, it introduced the world to something called nuclear winter. And then it finally seemed that there was a real mechanism for actual, total self-destruction, as opposed to science fiction mutations, or knocking the Earth off its axis, or even cobalt thorium G. Thank you, Stanley Kubrick. What I find particularly interesting in the literature and film of the nuclear war genre are the visions of a world past the point of the war, past the destruction of civilization. There's a unique value in those imagined spaces that attempt, with some kind of sincerity and competence, to offer an alternative to the all-or-nothing scorched-earth apocalypse, and then move into the unknown aftermath the best of these try to describe what life after the fall might really be like. These are the best tools we have to make choices about our present. I understand that it is definitely the most hypothetical of all aspects of nuclear war, but understanding the aftermath might ultimately be the most important part of this whole project of making realistic wars in film and literature and all media, because consequences, seen or unforeseen, longer term rather than short, are the real danger of any conflict, nuclear or not.
Part 1. Springtime in Hiroshima. On a warm April day, not so many years ago, I walked along the bank of the Motoyasu River. Benches gave a perch to salarymen at lunch and a very few tourists, folding and unfolding accordion-style maps in a time just before their mobile phones would take over the business of navigation through the mazes of foreign cities. There were lines of school children going from some unknown place to another unknown place. While I was there, the cherry trees blossomed. The Toyo Carp professional baseball team was on a winning streak, and I felt unusually calm in a bustling and modern city of 1.2 million. Also on the bank of this river, beyond the walking path, past a row of hedges and over a low black iron fence, is a solitary ruin of the world's first and only nuclear war. It slumps behind the backs of those lunchtime idlers and goes mostly unnoticed by the schoolchildren. In stone and twisted steel, the skeletal remnant of the Gimbaku Dome, the atomic bomb dome, stands silent watch over the city. All around this very somber and arguably morbid riverside memorial are cafes and busy downtown streets that will tell you very little about what happened there in 1945. If you'll indulge the poetic for a moment, Hiroshima is so vibrant and has recovered so well that even the memorial there seems to want to forget. Without the very many girders and buttresses installed over the years, it would have collapsed into a vacant lot of rubble decades ago. As a memorial, great effort is put into its preservation, but as the city recovered, it became ever more bizarre, somehow standing outside of time. Of course, it's not the only memorial, or even the only reminder. There are a handful of other buildings that survived, Almost all of them now returned to uses other than memorials. A short walk away from the river, past the shaded paths of the atomic bomb dome, a narrow side street leads to an intersection situated among multi-story concrete buildings, as innocuous in appearance now as the spot was before the bomb fell. It was about 1,900 feet above that narrow street where the atomic bomb detonated, just above the Ishima Hospital, August 6, 1945. The hospital was completely destroyed, but the founder, Dr. Kaoru Shima, who had been away for the day, survived. He came back to Hiroshima to treat the wounded and eventually rebuilt the hospital on the same spot in 1948. Today that hospital is run by his grandson, and it's right there by the small granite pedestal and plaque that marks the bullseye. I could go on, but my point is that when it comes to the aftermath of such a war, Hiroshima has very little to teach us in the long term, because it is a story of survival, recovery, and renewal, with the help of investment and infrastructure, largely from its former enemy, that simply would not, could not exist. The Hiroshima Toyo Carp, the pro baseball team, was created as a morale-building exercise during the city's reconstruction. I find that image to be absurd if the situation is closer to one of the scenarios we've looked at so far. I can't imagine the Sheffield Blade Runners fielding a team in the aftermath of threads. And it's true, Sheffield has a baseball team. What we can learn from the nuclear destruction of two Japanese cities is something more immediate. Less about the long-term future of societies in a war-ravaged world and more about the first days, weeks, 
and months in the lives of those who survive. Part 2. The Ruins, the Fallout, and the Atomic Plague. Before the movies of the Cold War, and even before the Cold War itself, the effort to visualize the effects of this new kind of weapon and this new kind of war really started before the fires were out. In Hiroshima, a 32-year-old newspaper photographer named Yoshito Matsushiga tried to photograph the immediate aftermath of the bomb even as the fires were burning. He was so traumatized by what he saw, he couldn't really function. He only managed to take seven pictures, two of which couldn't be developed, probably because of radiation. The five developed images remain the only visual document of the city on the ground on the day of the bombing. Given the scope of the disaster and its historical importance, I find this incredible. But there you have it. A military photographer named Yosuke Yamahata made it to Nagasaki 16 hours after the bombing. He suspected the city had fallen to the same weapon as Hiroshima and spent the day wandering the ruins. He was able to take about a hundred photographs of the destruction. These are the only images which include bodies, as the bomb had been so recent that no effort to remove them had yet been organized. So, this collection remains the only visual record of the immediate aftermath of a real nuclear war. Now, the U.S. Civilian Investigative Panel, the Strategic Bombing Survey, expanded this record, but those films and photographs weren't taken for several weeks. The Japanese film critic and producer, Akira Iwasaki, arrived in Hiroshima with a film crew in tow a few weeks after the bombing. Iwasaki was eventually found with his crew in Nagasaki and arrested by the U.S. occupation force. With some encouragement from the members of the bombing survey, he was allowed to keep filming, something the bombing survey was doing anyway. The result was the effects of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, a nearly three-hour look at the real-world effects of that attack. But there was still something lurking in the aftermath. Almost a month after Hiroshima had been leveled, the Australian journalist Wilfred Burchett arrived. As the first foreign journalist to report on the aftermath of the atomic bomb, he also became the first to describe the effects of exposure to radioactive fallout. His article was titled, The Atomic Plague, and was published on the 5th of September in London's Daily Express. He wrote, In Hiroshima, 30 days after the first atomic bomb destroyed the city and shook the world, people are still dying, mysteriously and horribly. People who were uninjured by the cataclysm from an unknown something which I can only describe as atomic plague. George Weller from the Chicago Daily News wrote a similar story on radiation sickness in Nagasaki, but the publication was blocked by U.S. censors. Both Burchette and Weller witnessed the progression of acute radiation sickness and the death of those suffering from its effects. Bleeding gums, loss of hair, necrotic lacerations. Certain scientists were, of course, well aware of the effects but it was all shocking to most of the public. Of course, the U.S. military couldn't risk a loss of morale, not to mention a loss of U.S. civilian support. And so the science writer for the New York Times, the perennial propaganda mouthpiece William L. Lawrence, came to the rescue. As quickly as September 12th, 1945, the New York Times ran an article by Lawrence that said radiation sickness was a fraud perpetrated by the Japanese military. It read, 
The Japanese are still continuing their propaganda aimed at creating the impression that we won the war unfairly. The Japanese describe symptoms that did not ring true. U.S. government media would spend a good deal of its money and time diminishing the effects of radiation over the next decade or so. But the damage was done. Professional scientists joined in the discussion in the public sphere, and the post-war population began to understand the atomic plague was real. The specter of lingering radiation and the effects of fallout worked their way from the headlines into popular culture. The 1955 film The Day the World Ended by famed B-movie director Roger Corman is mostly a monster movie, but it deserves consideration here because of its semi-serious concern with radioactive fallout. It's a reaction to the accident during Castle Bravo of the previous year, which irradiated a lot of people in the Pacific with a lot of fallout. This was the incident that sickened the crew of the Japanese fishing vessel, Lucky Dragon, and simply could not be covered up by the U.S. and its complicit media. Not even William L. Lawrence. The day the world ended begins this way. This is TD Day. Total destruction by nuclear weapons. And from this hour forward, the world as we know it no longer exists. And over all the lands and waters of the earth hangs the atomic haze of death. I will give credit where credit is due. There is a respectable piece of realism added with the use of the first model of the CDV-700 Geiger counter that had been issued by civil defense agencies the previous year. The premise of the film is that survivors have taken refuge in a prepared fallout shelter in a box canyon with lead ore in the rocks. Ten years after that Australian journalist's account of the mysterious black rain that fell over Hiroshima, the film makes the rain a primary threat. One character says, As long as the wind blows and the rain doesn't come too soon, we may live. Atomic Attack in 1954 was based on the 1950 novel Shadow on the Hearth by Judith Merrill. It deals with the same fear of fallout and radioactive rainfall. After a nuclear strike on New York, the family's high school-aged daughter is exposed to radioactive rain during a class trip. Though she turns out to be safe, her younger sister develops severe radiation poisoning from contact with one of her dolls that had been left outside in the rain. That would have to be a very dirty bomb, but the idea is sound. As I've said, the 1980s saw the push toward realism in the genre informed by science and, of course, decades of slow and some might say painful education through nuclear testing, war gaming, thought experiments, and political arguments. Of course, radiation sickness that atomic plague was along for the ride. I want to mention the remarkably understated Testament from 1983. It's a family drama that never leaves the neighborhood. No mushroom clouds, no burning cities. All of that is implied. But the disaster is somewhere over the horizon. Verbal reference to radiation sickness from unseen fallout is made once in a scene of a town hall meeting when the local doctor is called on to explain what the days and weeks ahead might have in store for the population. I'm sorry I don't have the sound clip. He says, We don't know yet. We really have no equipment available for accurately measuring radiation fallout. The RAD's dosage reaches 40 or 50 per hour and remains there long, there will be illness. There aren't any graphic scenes of the effects of radiation. Even when some characters start to die, first an infant, then the family's youngest son, the weak and the elderly, 
The film only implies that radiation is the culprit. It's so subtle that it seems to assume that you as the audience would be educated enough to know what's going on, which, of course, as an audience of such a film in the 1980s, you would have been. Released the same year, The Day After is explicit about radiation and fallout with visual examples coupled with exposition that chronicles the process. Nothing understated about it. As the first particulates settle over Lawrence, Kansas, science professor Joe Huxley says, here it comes. Which is really spooky, no matter how many times you watch it. A character who's been outside since the beginning of the attack shrouds himself in a blanket as he walks, but complains of bleeding gums. The daughter of the Dahlberg family exposes herself to radiation when she runs out of the family shelter and is later shown to be suffering from acute radiation sickness and is likely doomed. Eventually, Dr. Oakes, one of the story's main characters, is shown losing his hair and he returns to the ruins of his home in Kansas City to die. Threads took the description and depiction of fallout and radiation even further with its documentary or docudrama approach. Bulleted text and narration, as you might find in a scientific documentary, are interspersed with the dramatic scenes. The sequence begins with text that reads, Fallout imminent. Firefighting and rescue attempts unlikely. The threat of radiation lingers for the protagonist, Ruth, as she wanders out into the ruined world after Protect and Survive's recommended two-week period. She's desperately hungry, and after she meets a former acquaintance, they come across a dead sheep. They debate the radiation hazard. Is it safe to eat? I don't know. How can you tell? It's got a thick coat. That should have protected it. Uh, you breathe it in there, don't you? Should be all right. Sheep don't die of cold. It must be radiation. You'd be able to taste it if it were contaminated. Oh, I don't know. Anyway, we've no choice, have we? Unless we want to starve to death. They decide to tear the sheep apart and eat the meat raw. As that immediate danger of radiation wanes in the aftermath, what we're left to ponder is starvation. Among Douglas MacArthur's first decrees in the occupation after World War II was that American troops were not to eat any of the scarce food that was left to the conquered Japanese. That was a world in which such a luxury was still available. There were supply lines. There was already a plan for reconstruction. That's not the world of the global nuclear conflict. After radiation comes starvation. And if you make it through the starving years, then a whole new world order, or disorder, awaits. Part 3. The Threads in the Fabric of Society There is a pop culture wiki called TV Tropes. It specializes in identifying and categorizing the tropes found in television, film, literature, and whatever else there is comic books, podcasts, everything. In one really useful list, the site has developed a ranking system for the end of the world. A Class Zero apocalypse is a bad day in which destruction is limited to societal disruption at a local level. One film I haven't included in the show up to now is The Trigger Effect from 1996. 
mostly because it has nothing to do with the Cold War, but it does have a lot of great lessons about the collapse of an electrical grid, and that very well might be relevant to today. It's a representation of Class Zero. On the other end of the scale is a Class Six apocalypse in which all life on Earth is destroyed. This is all pop culture fun, but when you think about it seriously, you might start to realize that it's useful in the serious business of understanding the level of disruption and destruction expected in various phases of those Cold War years or the phases of disruption and destruction soon to come. In all of those civil defense-sponsored movies of the 1950s, atomic exchanges were never more than a class zero disaster, with localized social disruption. New York, San Francisco, but never the whole country at the same time. Rebuilding would be as sure as the post-World War II model in Europe and Japan. Our cities must fight and atomic attack all talk about individual cities taking shelter and then coming out again after the debris had stopped falling to rebuild homes and factories. Larger thermonuclear weapons of the late 1950s and 1960s brought along books and films that imagined much larger catastrophes that TV tropes might categorize as Class 4. These are planetary scale disasters with multiple species extinction. Class 6 included a planetary scale disaster with total extinction and then of course Class 10, which was planetary annihilation. Think Alderaan. A film that might fall into this last category is one I haven't mentioned before. The Day the Earth Caught Fire, from 1961. In it, a nuclear test has knocked the Earth off its axis. And of course, On the Beach, from 1959, frames its nuclear apocalypse as a shroud of fallout that will kill all surface life but leave the planet intact. A modest Class 5. Like so many films in the Cold War, these examples were speculative and not rooted in the technical realities of a nuclear conflict. A nuclear test was never going to knock the Earth off its axis any more than all life on Earth would be extinguished by a shroud of encroaching radiation, as in On the Beach or Dr. Strangelove. Humans figure it out. Sea life won't notice and cockroaches don't mind. But the 1980s brought something new to the world of nuclear war on film. For the first time, decades of research supported the proposed apocalyptic aftermath. Science had given the world the means to describe societal collapse and environmental destruction. Instead of film tropes and speculation, now Global Disaster took the form of scientific papers in peer-reviewed journals. It had become the age of Carl Sagan's Nuclear Winter, which is just a Class 4, but I think quite a bit more scary, because it had suddenly ceased to be fiction. In 1959, on the beach saw a global ecological collapse from radiation. Then in 1962, the half-hour science fiction film La Jetée imagined a nuclear war driving survivors into a subterranean existence of desperate scarcity. That French featurette would inspire the 1995 Terry Gilliam film Twelve Monkeys. The plot of Dr. Strangelove in 1964 never quite arrived at the aftermath. It ended during the nuclear exchange, but the doomsday device promised to force survivors into deep mines for decades to avoid the radiation. Some movies used a global die-off as a plot device, but gave no plausible explanation. Think of Day the World Ended in 1955 
and The World, The Flesh, and The Devil in 59. That was remade in 1985 as The Quiet Earth, which is superior in many ways. But these still weren't real, serious visions of collapse. They were largely thought experiments on how humans might react. Those plausible scenarios came seemingly all at once. 1983's Testament used slow, measured pacing to show the gradual social collapse of a small California town as it became isolated from the devastated world outside. We're left fairly convinced that things will only get worse. So, back to the day after. In the same year, it has a similar voice as far as the odds of society's chances. A radio address from the U.S. president makes some promises. My fellow Americans, while the extent of damage to our country is still uncertain and shall probably remain so for some time, preliminary reports indicate that principal weapons impact points included military and industrial targets in most sectors of the United States. There is, at the present time, a ceasefire with the Soviet Union which has sustained damage equally catastrophic. Many of you listening to me today have suffered personal injury, sudden separation from loved ones, and the tragic loss of your families. I share your grief, for I too have suffered personal loss. Despite the encouragement, scenes of a hopeless local situation play out under the president's words. Thoughts and prayers seem to not really be enough. Threads, the next year, offers quite a few explicit examples of similar themes. In fact, some of the scenes could be shown as a side-by-side -side comparison with the day after, with little to differentiate them except for the day after's softer edge. Looting food shortages and insufficient medical care for the injured and dying are all subjects visualized in both films. Threads, however, puts a premium on demonstrating the deterioration of society. The title itself refers to the threads that hold together an urban society, explained in the opening narration. In an urban society, everything connects. Each person's needs are fed by the skills of many others. Our lives are woven together in a fabric. But the connections that make society strong also make it vulnerable. After the attack in Threads, the first of the threats to the social order is an inability to feed the survivors. The text reads, attack plus one week food stocks controlled by central government representatives. And then, no food distribution likely until two weeks after attack. As survivors start to come out of their shelters after two weeks, an angry mob gathers at one military-controlled food cache and rushes the locked gate. The group of government officials with the actual authority to distribute food and supplies remains trapped in a bunker under the collapsed Sheffield City Government building. One of the officials asks, can't we get any food from outside? The answer from the head of the local wartime government, where from? Everybody's in the same boat. And that's the inevitability of starvation and the impossibility of recovery when the infrastructure is shattered, when help is not coming, when those threads of society have snapped. Facing a lack of food and two caches potentially raided and looted by the same angry mobs previously shown, the officials ponder what to do. The head of the local wartime government, Sutton, asks the doctor on the committee for his advice. The doctor responds, We'll have to cut their rations. I've worked it out now. A thousand calories for manual workers. 
500 for the rest. In the grim economics of the aftermath, there are two hard facts of life. A survivor who can work gets more food than one who can't. And the more who die, the more food is left for the rest. It's a social contract that will underpin the early months and years of the aftermath. And before any kind of equilibrium is reached, starvation and death will become commonplace. But it isn't simply a failure of the supply lines and international and inter-community trade that will make food scarce. One significant thing that differentiates Threads from the day after is that its writing and production had the benefit of an additional year. In that time, a team of scientists, including Carl Sagan, published a paper in Science titled Nuclear Winter, Global Consequences of Multiple Nuclear Explosions. This built on the work of Paul Crutzen and John Burks in The Atmosphere After Nuclear War, Twilight at Noon, which had been published in 1982. The new study used a computer model to quantify the hypothesis offered by Crutzen and Burks, namely that a nuclear war would throw a huge amount of dust into the atmosphere and darken and cool the planet. With all of the social and environmental stresses, the addition of a months-long dramatic cooling of at least the northern hemisphere seemed to be the final blow to any sense that even the most productive agricultural regions could feed the survivors. And that's not even considering where the fuel might come from to power the combines and tractors and trucks needed to get the anemic grain supply into hungry mouths. The day after alludes to the environmental impacts of nuclear war on agriculture, or doesn't so much allude as call out an absurd scenario, trying to combat the inevitable decline in agricultural productivity from radiation. The environment and biology are discussed when the lone local civil defense official speaks at a community meeting of area farmers. So, what we want you to do now, burn out your current crops, start decontaminating the soil, and plan next spring's planting. Crop selection must consider plants least susceptible to ultraviolet radiation and yields for human rather than animal consumption. But, they ask, how do you go about doing any of that? Even without a global cooling event, a year-long winter, this is a huge obstacle to agriculture. But by the next year, nuclear winters surpassed irradiated topsoil as the means by which agriculture would retreat to medieval levels of productivity. Threads blends the science and the dramatic visualization of the post-nuclear world and is hyper-conscious of the new scientific work. More than a week after the events of the war, the narrative pauses, and one of the film's factual slides reads, 3,000 megaton exchange, smoke produced 100 million tons, dust lifted into the atmosphere 500 million tons. These numbers can all be relatively easily derived from the calculations in that paper on nuclear winter I mentioned. And so, as the narration says, it starts to get dark, it starts to get cold. What the day after implies about the future of agriculture, that it will be difficult and unproductive, Threads makes specific. As the effects of nuclear winter begin to subside, on-screen text says that skies become clearer, returning sunlight now heavier with ultraviolet light. This is one of those technical details that had finally made its way to the mainstream by the 1980s. The idea that a nuclear war might increase UV light had been a part of the debate on the atmospheric effects from the early 1970s. 
The theory, basically, is that nitric oxide and nitrogen dioxide produced in nuclear fireballs would destroy the atmospheric ozone layer. So, obviously, things just look better and better, don't they? Finally, the reset of society to a pre-industrial age and the failure of agriculture take a severe human toll. In the last minutes of threads, we see the years that follow. The text on screen reads, three to eight years after attack, population reaches minimum. UK numbers may decline to medieval levels, possibly between four and 11 million. That's down from about 56 million when the war starts. Then we're transported 10 years after. A subsistence-level peasantry scrapes fallow dirt. And then the film moves into uncharted territory, past the expected outcomes of the war and into what might be the uncharted analytical, theoretical, and narrative territory about the long-term effects of nuclear war and what the period of recovery over a decade might really look like or even mean. We will visit those final minutes of threads because it also speaks to what a world that's bombed itself into a numb and wretched state might pass on to the next generation. Children with no memory of what had come before. Part 4. Erasing History and a Little Mad Max When I originally wrote and submitted the paper that this section is based on, I really got a lot of trouble for saying that speculation about what the intermediate to distant future after a nuclear war might look like was properly in the realm of anthropology, rather than the history of science, technology, and the Cold War. I said that because so often in film and literature, these distant states of society look more like early social structures, from the Stone Age to agrarian feudalism. The four major subfields of anthropology are archaeology, biological anthropology, cultural anthropology, and linguistics. Archaeologists look at material objects made by humans in previous epochs. Archaeology picks apart the remains of former human groups to learn about them, to bring them back to life, very often incorrectly. But at least it's a good try. Biological anthropologists pick apart what makes humans different and similar, how they adapt to different parts of the world and different stressors. Cultural anthropology is all about norms, practices, perspectives, and social organization. Linguistic anthropologists study language, how it's changed, and what it can say about the path that populations have taken. This all may seem like a bit of a detour, but I would argue that when trying to represent what might become of our world in the distant future after a wholesale collapse of our current order, we would do well to look to the distant past instead of to the 20th or 21st century world that we burned and left behind. You'll see fertile ground for all of these specialties in the films that try to visualize what comes in the day after the day after. Let's look at a few. One school of thought sees the nuclear war and collapse of society as the starting point for a new beginning. This was common in film and literature in the early Cold War and used as a device in everything from serious films to monster movies. As the existential threat of nuclear war came to be understood, or at least assumed in pop culture, another branch of speculation took hold. This is what Tom Overton in the Paris Review called the erasure of history. I love that phrase. Here, Either by the collapse of civilization or the destruction of the planet, the lessons of the past are lost to whatever society might grow into the void left by the global holocaust. When nuclear war still seemed manageable and society salvageable through most of the 1950s, 
no matter what level of destruction was shown, films often ended with some ray of hope that a new beginning might come from the disaster. The first film of the Cold War to deal with nuclear weapons came out in 1947. It was the beginning or the end. It was a question because it seemed that the only thing certain about nuclear weapons was that a new human age had begun. The film's closing text reads, To the people of the 25th century, this was the beginning. Only you and those who have lived between us and you can know the end. I guess this is kind of positive, as it presupposes that there will still be moviegoers in the 25th century in a world populated primarily by Marvel Cinematic Universe films. One of the first, if not the very first, film to depict the aftermath of a nuclear war was Five. It was released in 1951. Five deals with the interpersonal relationships of five survivors and ends with a sort of partially incorrect mishmash of a quote from the Book of Revelations. It says, And I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and there shall be no more death, no more sorrow, no more tears. Behold, I make all things new. Like Five, the film Day the World Ended looked at the interactions and stresses between its characters. And like Five, the film ends with the implied, hopeful optimism of a title card that reads, The Beginning. 1959's The World, The Flesh, and The Devil also ends with the words, The Beginning, which, along with the title card, The End, with a question mark, was already getting a little overused. Variations on this are also at the end of The Creation of Humanoids, circa 1961, which says, End, Point of Beginning, and Panic in Year Zero, 1962, which says, There must be no end, only a new beginning. Then came that more ambiguous, doom-shadowed end to movies. On the Beach portrays the extinction of humanity through nuclear war, but ends with a stern warning on a banner flapping in the wind of the empty city that reads, There is still time, brother. Of course, directed at the audience, not the already deceased characters. The Day the Earth Caught Fire in 1961 tells the story of a pending planet-wide environmental disaster brought about by nuclear testing. In an effort to right the planet's orbital orientation, a final nuclear test is planned. The film ends with a countdown and a shot of a church steeple and offers no answer to the audience as to whether the planet was saved or doomed. Ladybug, Ladybug, 1963, ends with a child shouting, Stop! repeatedly, and the sounds of jets or bombers overhead. Though the film never makes it entirely clear whether war is coming or if it was always just a technical glitch. Failsafe, both the novel and the 1964 film, end with the atomic bombing of New York City in retaliation for the accidental bombing of Moscow in order to avert a wider war, while Dr. Strangelove in the same year ends with a massive global nuclear war and the possibility of survival only in deep salt mines with many, many beautiful women. The global holocaust montage at the close of Dr. Strangelove, set to the ironically hopeful tune of Vera Lynn's We'll Meet Again, ushered in a new era in the genre one in which nuclear war brought about the end of civilization and, in the most extreme cases, the erasure of history. This was likely a response to the increasing dangers of the Cold War in the first half of the 1960s. The 1966 Czechoslovakian film, Late August at the Hotel Ozone, or The End of August, imagines a post-war wilderness in which a band of women born after the war exist in an untamed world 
in which ordered society is non-existent. The film begins with the old woman, who still remembers the time before the war and marks her memories by looking at the bands of a felled tree. The tree will no longer mark the years, and when the old woman dies, there will be nothing left of the past. We have to mention Planet of the Apes from 1968, which shows a world in which a nuclear war has returned humans to a wild state and apes have inherited civilization. History has been so completely erased that it is only revealed in the closing moments of the film that the Planet of the Apes is actually Earth. Sorry about the spoilers, but if you haven't seen it since 1968, I don't think it's going to be a great disappointment to you. Now here is a rare one. Glenn and Randa, from 1971, is very much a movie of that generation. It's set in a world that has reverted to a tribal society. It follows a young couple who are oblivious to the world outside of their tribe except for what Glenn has learned from pre-war comic books. Originally, it was rated X for male frontal nudity. It's very much the most difficult film of all that I've mentioned to find. I'm sorry that I need to lump the 1970s into such a rapid-fire list, but it's in the service of showing the similarities about visions of the post-war future in that decade. Zardoz, 1974. A Boy and His Dog, 1975. Logan's Run, 1976. And the animated feature Wizards, 1977. These are all post-apocalyptic visions of a world that has lost its memory due to the historical rupture caused by war. Like with other aspects of nuclear war on film, the 1980s provided unique and compelling visions. The final scenes of the day after offer little hope that national recovery is even possible in any meaningful sense. Most of the main characters are dead or dying, and with the last lines of the film, it would seem that any coherent national government or infrastructure has already failed. The words are spoken over the ham radio operated by Professor Joe Huxley at the University of Kansas Science Building. He says, Hello, is anybody there? Anybody at all? But there is no answer. While the day after concerns itself with the aftermath of the war, out to about a month, threads on the other hand, puts a lot of effort into creating a vision of the post-war future out to more than a decade. Ruth, who is the surviving protagonist, is seen with her 10-year-old daughter, identified only in the screenplay as Jane. They're dressed in rags, hoeing the soil on a hilltop when Ruth collapses. She's prematurely aged, Eyes are milky with the cataracts brought about by increased ultraviolet light or a decade of ionizing radiation exposure. And then Ruth dies. Apparently unable to understand this, her daughter pokes her and says, Ruth, Ruth, work, work, up, in a halting English that offers the first clue as to the assumptions made about the state of the survivors. In the next scene, a few children sit in a gutted lecture hall watching a heavily damaged tape of a pre-war children's education show. It's called Words and Pictures, incidentally. Their faces are blank and their expressions are empty. The next scene shows the children, including Jane, employed in the business of pulling the threads from fabric. Maybe a little too on the nose, but an obvious metaphor for the unraveling of society and its threads. There is some rudimentary return of electricity, some societal order, and attempt at education, but the world as depicted has not recovered to any meaningful degree and remains almost entirely pre-industrial. Next, on-screen text reads, 13 years after, over still images of a wholly ruined city, 
Another image shows some scavenging efforts. Still another shows coal miners with pickaxes and other primitive tools. Followed by a 19th century steam engine indicating that at least some parts of Britain have managed, in 13 years, to return to an early industrial age. But what comes next undermines any sense of hope that these developments may have offered. Jane is seen tending a fire in a barn with a dead rabbit. Two young men, Spike and Gaz, enter the barn and confront her in nearly indecipherable English. As performed, it's nearly indecipherable, and I'll play the clip in a moment. But the screenplay does have translations. The exchange goes like this. Spike says, what is it? Gaz, I saw it, it's a rabbit. Spike, give it to us. Gaz, you better had or else we'll beat you. Jane, you'd better stand back or else you'll get hit. Gaz, where are you staying? Come with us. Jane, where? Gaz, our place. Spike, share the rabbit. Here's what that sounds like. 13 years after the war. Oi! One B! Seaton, Coney. Gizzer! Gizzer! Bah! Altos O'Brien! Best stand up with our gags! Gizzer! Where is Doc Bat? Come on, us? Where? Come on! Us plays! Gazzle Spike! Shannon Coney, eh? Come on! Come on, Shannon Coney! This patois is the result of a generation of young people raised in the social vacuum of a diminished world. There would be no meaningful education, at least for their early years, and many of the children in the generation wouldn't have known their parents and wouldn't have had surrogates in communities with barely enough time for survival. This is definitely one of the most troubling, unknown long-term effects of gutting a society in a global catastrophe. In 1980, writer Russell Hoban published Ridley Walker. It's a novel written entirely in the deformed English of the distant centuries after a nuclear war. One of the major themes of the novel is the way that History has been incorrectly remembered, and the memory of the war conflated with religion because of a collapse of proper, generationally communicated language. For example, the USA is personified as St. Eustace, the spelling being E-U-S-A, Yusa, who was the first to pull apart the little shining man, the atom, who is both the personified atom and in the folk mythology of the novel, Jesus. We have to mention here Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome because of Ridley Walker. Midway through the movie, Mad Max Rakatansky is taken in by a group of abandoned children. Not feral like the boomerang kid in Mad Max 2, but alone in a social order of their own making. Then we hear their story in a torchlit play of children evacuated from the collapsing world and left after a crash, Lord of the Flies style. I'll mention here that they are waiting for Captain Walker to return. There are really more similarities with Ridley Walker than there probably should be, but we'll leave that for the film critics. Threads, in its final moments, asks what might come of the children, of the next generation, and the generation after that. It asks the question this way. Jane, who is now almost 14, is at the end of her pregnancy, and she stumbles through the ruins with the first contractions of labor. She makes her way into a hospital, sparse with pale light and metal-framed cots, the nurse ignores her as she pleads for help. Eventually, the baby is delivered. Unlike Jane's own birth, in a barn to an exhausted but relieved Ruth, the scene is silent 
there is no crying. Without being shown, the baby is wrapped in a bloody cloth and given to Jane. Jane's face contorts in disgust. As she opens her mouth to scream, the frame freezes and cuts to black. No explanation is given. No informational text with scientific assumptions are offered. The film leaves us to think about what comes next, for Jane and for society and for the species. For all of the data, the studies, and the research that went into the making of the film, in its final moment, it reminds us that for everything we know about nuclear war, it's what we don't know that should scare us the most. Or what we don't know yet. Part 5. Imagining the Unimaginable The day after was originally conceived as an exploration of the effects of a nuclear war on the United States by Brandon Stoddard, who was the president of ABC Motion Pictures in 1983. What he did not want was a political statement. He told a Time magazine interviewer a short time later that the film had no particular political intent and was not intended to have one. But the director, Nicholas Meyer, has since been very clear in interviews that his motivations for working on the project were definitely political. He said to Empire Magazine, I hoped the movie would unseat Ronald Reagan. My secret thought was that if people saw the face of nuclear war, they wouldn't vote for someone who would come to power believing in the concept of a winnable one. Students of history who take an even hand in politics will understand a little bit of the irony here. The film did not unseat Reagan, but it did have a direct effect on Reagan's own preconceived notions and perceptions when he did see it. Not the revolutionary effect some, including Meyer, have since claimed. That the day after led directly to the Reykjavik summit or to the end of the Cold War. But it did seem to sour Ron on the idea of being responsible for the disaster. One thing you won't find on the DVDs that was present in the original broadcast is that the anemic post-war presidential address to the battered United States was voiced by a Reagan soundalike. That must have been additionally disconcerting to the old actor as he watched the film unfold on his television at Camp David, as he did prior to the air date. That voice was changed later, and I've only read about the original. Immediately after the end of the broadcast of the day after, the national debate began. It was a very special episode of ABC's Viewpoint, hosted by Nightline anchor Ted Koppel. The panel was made up of Henry Kissinger, Elie Wiesel, William F. Buckley, Carl Sagan, Brent Scowcroft, and Robert McNamara, most of whom were actually competent to speak on the subject. This was the venue for the coining of Sagan's now-famous analogy for the nuclear arms race. What ensued was a heated political discussion, notably not a debate, about the nuclear arms race and war, as well as the validity of the day after as a realistic portrayal of nuclear war in the 1980s. Director Nicholas Meyer definitely intended the film to be as realistic as network standards of the time would allow. He focused on causes and effects and packaged them in a way that would educate more than it would entertain. In retrospect, he said again to Empire, it wasn't intended to be a good movie, it was intended to be effective. But it is good in that it takes you by the balls and squeezes. The point of it was, this is a topic we avoid facing up to. We abstract it, we depersonalize it. What happened is that people who had filtered out the specifics saw it from A to Z. In the book Film and the Nuclear Age, the author, Tony Perrin, mentions some of the publicity deployed ahead of the release. She says, The day after removes the unimaginable from the abstract and makes it shatteringly real. This is what a nuclear Armageddon is going to look like. And those genuine efforts have been at the heart of my analysis in this four-part series. These kinds of films in particular have a powerful effect on group consciousness. 
They even have a role in the making of history because they can, and often do, change minds and steer the zeitgeist with their own interpretations of history. Or in the case of the films I've mentioned here, history that hasn't happened yet. As Ebenezer Scrooge says, Answer me one question. Are these the shadows of things that will be, or are they the shadows of things that may be only? In the case of these speculative films of nuclear war, they motivate the mass mind of society to its own interpretation of the future. These films refuse to allow nuclear war to be unimaginable, as the language so often puts it. An unimaginable war, an unimaginable catastrophe, an unimaginable future. Not at all. The worst of the worst case scenarios are all imaginable, and they have been imagined in the many films of the Cold War. Look at their spectrums of possibility and make your choices. Choose wisely. Hello? Is anybody there? Anybody at all? Thank you for listening to The Cold War Vault. This episode and this series was researched, written, and produced by DJ Kinney. That's me. It's based on original research and publications by the very same. Please consider becoming a patron on patreon.com slash goldwarvault for documents and other extra materials that go into making these shows. It really makes a huge difference. So, will the living envy the dead? Not me, buddy. But I will envy anyone who can maintain a post-apocalyptic stash of high-octane beers. Until next time.